Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and this is episode 23 of the UK Money Podcast. And on today's episode, I'm going to be firstly covering the hot topic in personal finance over the last couple of weeks, which is this increase to national insurance. Um, I'm going to be explaining what it actually is, so what it means for your pay pack and how much more national insurance you're going to be paying. I'm going to be talking about what the tax, it is a tax really, but what the contribution or what do you call it? I don't know. What national insurance, what the increase is going to be going towards the kind of, and what my thoughts are on it and how that's going to kind of play out over the next few years. Obviously just my thoughts. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to give you what I think is my best guess as how that's going to look in the, in the coming years. I've also had some, um, some really good questions come through from you guys. So thank you very much for continuing to send those through. I really, really do appreciate it. Really helps drive the content of the show. Um, the first question has come through from Joshua and Joshua has just got married. So congratulations, mate. Um, all the best with your, your wedded bliss, your married life together. Um, he's got some questions about, um, or a question I should say, but what, what, are some things, maybe some blind spots, maybe some things that he should consider that he hasn't already. Now, he seems like a pretty switched on guy. Um, he's thought of a lot of the stuff that I would have said um, he should look at. Um, but I've got uh, a couple of things I think is worth mentioning. Now, he's obviously got married. That's his big change in life. But but actually, from what I'm seeing, loads of people are going through changes of life, in uh, changes in their life at the moment. You know, marriage is obviously one thing um, that happens that, that causes us to take stock of where we're at and make sure we're on the same page. Um, but also things just like having kids, um, if you're buying house for the first time or moving house, um, especially that last one, there's a lot of people that are going through this at the moment. You know, a lot of people who have, um, COVID has caused us to re-examine where we're at in life, re-examine what's important to us. And in a lot of cases, that means making some some big changes. And whenever you go through a, a major change in life, that's a really good time to assess where you're at, to assess what your objectives are, and to assess where that leaves your finances. So that's going to be a good one to talk through. Uh, and I've also had another question from somebody who's in, well, I guess it's a similar situation in a lot of ways, um, looking to buy the first house or no, not buy the first house, actually, it's to buy an investment property. And they already know my thoughts on that. Um, but to buy a, a property um, are saving for for that property and want to know whether they should be investing that money or just sitting on cash. So we'll talk through that one as well. And then, of course, talking through what's been going on with national insurance and how that's going to look for you over the coming years. So as I said, these questions have come through via uh, messages to me. These have both come through actually on Instagram. So uh, honestly, not that active on Instagram. Um, I don't think I have enough hair or a good enough body for it. Um, but I am on there. If you want to send me a message, obviously everybody's on Instagram. So um, sending me a DM on there or a voice message on there is a really good way to get in touch with me. Um, if not, you can also always leave a voice message on the show. So as I always say down in the, in the show notes, if you scroll down, you'll see a link that says leave a voice message. And that can also be a really good way to drop, uh, drop a question to me, whether that is about your um, you know, personal finance, a tax query, a question about investing, anything you can possibly think of, even like your career, stuff like that. Um, the more questions I get, the more relevant the content's going to be and the better the show will be to listen to. So with that said, let's get into the first part of today, which is uh, I want to talk about national insurance first, um, because that is the, the hot topic. Now, if you have missed this, effectively what's happening Oh, actually, let's take a step back. What is national insurance first, right? So national insurance is basically a tax. Um, if you have ever 
seen or paid any attention to your payslip, you'll see that there's the line for your tax, P-A-Y-E, contribution or tax, we'll say on there. Uh, and then there's another line which says NI, employee NI. Um, and national insurance, the, the, um, the reason it was designed was to pay for the state pension. So it's not like a personal pension where you make contributions that you then access. So that's how a personal pension works, right? You know, you have your, that money comes out of your pay, your pay packet, goes into a pension fund, that builds up over time. When you hit retirement, you can then start pulling that money, your own money, back out to help you live once you've finished work. National insurance works a bit differently. It looks kind of similar because you're paying money in um, throughout your working life. And then once you hit age pension age, state pension age, you start pulling money out of the system. Um, but actually it's not like funded like that effectively. And I did talk about this in more detail a couple of weeks ago in an episode, but national insurance is where we currently, the people who are working now are funding the state pensions of people who are currently receiving state pensions. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, if you've got a grandparent who's on the state pension or a parent who's on the state pension, you know, your national insurance uh, contributions are directly paying them their state pension. And to be, you know, they did the same, you know, their state pension or their NI contributions were paying for people who were on the state pension whilst they were, they were working. Um, the issue we have obviously is that as time goes on, we're getting this aging population. So there's a greater and greater proportion who are taking money out of that system um, than people who are putting money in. So this is an increase to national insurance. It's not an increase to income tax and it's 1.25%. Um, how will that impact you? Well, obviously it depends on how much um, money you are earning. Now, the way that this works is that NI, um, NI is like a, uh, a sliding scale. So you pay, uh, you pay currently, you pay 12% national insurance um, up to just over 50 grand a year. And then if you're earning over 50 grand a year, it, um, national, insurance contribution, uh, national insurance amount drops to 2%. So um, what is basically happening is there's going to be a, an additional 1.25% that's being added uh, to that. If you're on 20,000 bucks a year, 20,000 bucks, 20,000 pounds a year, um, that means you're going to pay an extra 130 pounds a year in NI. If you're on 30,000 a year, that means you're going to increase your NI contributions by 255 a year. On 50,000, it's 505. On 80,000, it's 880. And on 100,000, it's 1,130 pounds per year in additional national insurance contributions that you're going to be paying. So um, this is something that will impact your, your pay packet. Now, you know, you could argue it's not really that significant. Um, in the grand scheme of things, the amount that is increasing isn't probably going to make or break your budget. If it is going to, you've probably got um, some bigger issues. Um, I guess, you know, my concern about this is that with anything anything new that, uh, before I go and get on my soapbox and go on that rant, let's just take a little bit of a step back and explain where that money's going. So the way that this has been sold is that um, it's a, it's going to be an additional increase to help fund health and social care. So this is a really big issue because there are much more um, people who are living much longer, spending more time in care, um, and that cost is basically unsustainable. So the government is looking for ways to fund care, and that's the way that this has been sold. It's been sold as a, a levy, which will provide additional funds to the government to be able to help them fix social care, in inverted commas, their words, not mine. Now, social care does need fixing. 
Um, it is an absolute shit show. Um, I think I'm, I have mentioned this on the podcast before. My son has complex disabilities, so we, um, you know, we're invo- I'm involved in this world. I kind of see how it works from the inside, and it is completely broken. It doesn't work. The system is expecting people on very very low wages to do very difficult and demanding jobs, um, and it needs uh, an overhaul. Um, and this is the government trying to do that, I suppose. The first problem with it is that the um, it's the increase initially is going to go to the NHS. So the NHS needs more money as well, I know that, but the it's being sold as a health and social care levy when in fact there's only going to be a small amount of this money that is actually going to be going to health and social care. The rest is going to be trying to plug some gaps or, or wax some Band-Aids on the NHS. And then supposedly by 2023 it will then transition from being in addition to the national insurance as it stands now to being an additional health and social care levy. So actually what we're going to end up with is but going forward from 2023, at the moment we have income tax from our pay, on our payslip, we have national insurance on our payslip, and we're going to have a third one, which is the health and social care levy. So my first thought on this is that, um, number one, it's being sold as something that it's not, at least right now. So I don't really like that. Um, but also... Once these things are in place, there will be inevitable creep in their rates. So if those figures I told you just before, you know, they sound pretty insignificant, you know, n- not going to be a massive issue for most people in and of themselves. My concern is that when 2023 rolls around, um, there's been a 1.25% uplift in AI that's supposedly going to go away and be switched over to health and social care levy. It's going to be really easy for the government at that point to say, look, we just can't afford to reduce that um, increase to NI, but we're just going to add the health and social care levy on top. You know, it's much easier for a government to keep in place an existing tax or an existing levy rather than try and sell to the media and sell to all of us an increase or a new one. So, um, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. New taxes are never nice. I don't. I don't propose to have the answers um, because both the NHS and the health and social care system really are not working very well, and they do need fixing. I don't know whether this is the answer. I think for me, it seems a bit like a bandaid on a gunshot wound. But it will be interesting to see. I think at the very least, um, we should definitely be prepared for this not to be the last tax raise we see in coming years. Oh, okay. That was a bit heavy and political to start with. So let's move on to some more, more chill, more happy personal finance topic. And that let's let's turn to Joshua, who's recently got married. That's a bit of a more that's a bit of a nicer topic, isn't it? So Joshua has dropped me a question, a DM on Instagram. He's left me a voice note, which makes him an absolute legend. So thank you, Joshua, for that. I'm gonna play that one and then we'll have a chat about it. Hello, Jason, and hello, listeners to the UK Money Podcast. Really enjoying the the content so far, and uh, I thought I'd throw a question into the hat since you asked for some requests. So I got married three months ago, and there have been lots of different things to to adjust to, you know, of course, sharing your your money and uh, things like preparing revised wills, all of those kind of things. But I just get the impression that there are so many of these little things that it's quite easy to miss something off the list. So my question to you, Jason, is what should I and my wife be looking out for in terms of, you know, merging the finances and making sure that we're 
we're really aligned on the same financial pathway uh, together. But more so those those technical things like wills and uh, income protection insurance, just making sure that we've got everything set up just as it should be uh, for the future. That's great. Thank you very much for that, Joshua. And first off, congratulations, mate. Um, exciting news. Um, what a time to get married during lockdown. I hope you're able to at least have uh, a few people at the wedding three months ago. I'm not sure that would have been touch and go as to whether you could have a decent number of guests or not, but that's great news. Congratulations. Um, really good that you're, you're starting to think about your finances in uh, in this period because it does change. It does change quite a lot. You know, the saying is, you know, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And that is, um, that is often very true when it comes to marriage and money. You know, I work with a lot of family law solicitors. Um, and so I see how intertwined your finances are, whether you like it or not, um, once you get married. So it's, um, I think, for me, the very the key point you, you, you alluded to it there yourself, you said something about being on the same financial path, I think, with the word you use, something like that. And that is, to me, aside from the technical stuff, and I've got a couple of technical things that we can talk about, but that is the, the biggest um, or the most important thing that you should be considering if you're if you're married, but if you're if you're in a, a serious long-term relationship as well and you're starting to share money, you're starting to look at purchasing thing, things together like houses and stuff like that. Being on the same financial page is, I cannot stress how important that is. Um, and that is around how you both feel about debt, how you both feel about investing, how you both feel about work. Um, the biggest impact, the biggest negative impact you can have on reaching financial goals is having two people that are trying to achieve different things. So, you know, the, let's look at an extreme example of that is if you have one person in a couple, in a married couple who is um, keen on FIRE, which if you haven't heard of that in um, that anagram before, it stands for financial independence, retiring early. Um, and that quite often you get people that are doing that who are like mega frugal and they're saving a massive proportion of their income. They're trying to live off very, very little money with the idea being that by the time they're 35 or 40 or you know, young, very young, that they can have enough money to retire from work um, and live off that. Now, often it's not completely retire. It's like pursue your passions or whatever. But the idea is being able to get out of the workforce, get out of the career ladder very, very early. And that needs some pretty big sacrifice. You know, that needs, that means really reducing your expenditure in the short term. If the other person in that married couple is actually just kind of a YOLO type and wants to live their life and wants to just go out and enjoy life and that might not be coming from a place of recklessness. You know, maybe their parents died when they they were young, or maybe they have seen um, people be very unhappy all through their careers, and they don't want that, and they feel like life is short, and you should enjoy the now. And that is a perfectly reasonable um, outlook on life, in my opinion. Um, but it's just about understanding where you both sit with that, and trying to come to agreement on what are your family's objectives, your combined, your your family's objectives around money and how you're going to achieve them. Now, it sounds like you're already having those discussions. So that that's really good. Um, but for those of you out there who maybe aren't at that place, you know, I would suggest that that is the number one thing you should do. Now, to blow my own trumpet a little bit, not just mine or financial planners, that, in my opinion, is one of the really big benefits of a financial planner. You know, we can talk about tax rates and allowances and investment portfolios and stuff we we bring a lot of value there but actually having it can be really difficult to have those kind of conversations with your partner because you care about them and you don't want to tell them that 
you don't want to do the things they want to do. You know, a lot of times we want to make sure that they're happy and that might mean that we are prepared to set aside our objectives a little bit or vice versa. So having an independent third party, like a financial planner, can be a good way for us to, you know, often we, I will sit down with the clients and say, you know, what are your objectives? What do you want to do? What, what's life look like for you? And sometimes you get the situation where you have one partner does a lot of talking. That's pretty common. Um, and I find it really important to ask the other person, you know, what about you? How do you feel about that? Do you agree with that? Is there anything you would say that's different to that? So that can be really important to just make sure you're talking through those objectives really carefully, really thoroughly, and making sure you're on the same page. Now, in terms of some specific things, um, first one is looking at your income levels. Now, you will have, if two people are working, which they may not be, but that's okay if one of them is or one of them isn't, either way, there is almost certain to be a difference in income in a couple. And that might be a small difference, in which case it doesn't make much difference either way, but it could be a large difference. That is a massive opportunity to minimize the tax you're paying. And there's a couple of ways to do that. Number one is um, if you've maximized things like ISAs, um, it can be a really good way to look to reduce the tax you're paying on investment. So let's, for example, if you had um, investments just in a general investment account that was taxable, um, generally speaking, not in, all, not in all cases, like I say, it's no financial advice here, it's just general kind of info. Generally speaking, you're gonna be better off having those investments in the person's name who earns the least amount of money. Because if you've got one person who doesn't work and one person who's a basic or a high rate taxpayer, you're not gonna pay tax on the investments held in the non, non-taxpayer's um, name, and you are gonna pay tax potentially um, on the person who does work and does earn an income. So. There's a really good opportunity there to maximize the assets in the non-taxpayer's name or the reduced person paying the least amount of tax. Now, that is that is the case for building up assets as time goes on, but it's also the case for existing assets. So one of the really cool things about a, a married couple is you can transfer assets between yourselves without triggering a CGT liability. So if one of you had an investment portfolio that you had built up in previous years uh, or, investment, or investment property, something like that, um, you know, that is something to really consider potentially taking advantage of. You know, you can transfer ownership. Property is a bit different because of stamp duty and stuff. But so, you know, we're just talking like really basic overview. But broadly speaking, that would be something to consider is looking at if you are looking to sell an asset um, and there's going to be a potentially a CGT implication that you should make sure you're utilizing both partners' CGT allowances um, and uh, taking advantage of any any difference in income if one's earning earning less income than the other. So that is one really good opportunity. Another good opportunity um, for again, if you've got one spouse who's working and one who's not, uh, and this will this will often be the case when there are kids on board. So even if you're younger and you've not had kids yet, but it's something that's on the horizon, it's something to be aware of, is that if you have a spouse who is or one person of a couple who is not working. Um, or earning below the ta- the personal allowance, I should say. So they can be working, but earning below the personal allowance, they can transfer um, up to 10% of their personal allowance to the other person. So in practice, what does that mean? Well, currently the personal allowance is £12,570. So um, if you are not working and you're earning under that, you know, if you're not working at all, earning zero, then that's fine. If you're earning like five or 6000 that's fine. You can transfer 10% of that allowance to your partner. So 
the government is very kind and allows you to round it up. So you can transfer up to 1,260 of your personal allowance over to your partner who is earning more than you. Now, that means that um, they will pay they will pay less tax on that portion of money. So that's like a free kick, very straightforward, very simple win. Um, and the other really cool thing about that is you can actually backdate that. So if you've just sitting there listening to this and going, oh, shit, we haven't done that. That's really annoying. You can actually backdate this back to um, any tax year since the 2017-18 tax year. So, you know, if you've not looked at this and this is your situation, you can just go online. It's like, um, I'm on the website now. It's uh, www.gov.uk backslash marriage dash allowance. And then that gives you all the information. You can apply online and they could potentially backdate that. So you could get up to like 1,200 quid or... or um, or £1,000 back just by doing that. So those would be my two things, three things really. Get your objectives in order, make sure they're spot on together, married together, just like um, on the same page, everyone reading from the, singing from the same hymn, hymn sheet. Um, have I got any more cliches about that? don't think so. That will do, I think. Um, marriage allowance, check out that if you've not already, if one is one partner is earning um, nothing or, or earning below the personal allowance and take advantage of that CGT opportunity as well. So on to my next question, and this one um, is about looking to purchase a second property. So it's a second property they're looking at, buy to let, um, and she's got some questions on how should she she should be saving, or a question, how she should, she should be saving her deposit on this one. So again, let's listen to this and then we can have a chat about it. What your thoughts were on that? So although I kind of took forever to get to my point, my point is saving for a house, a second property, which I'm hopeful to buy in four years' time, do I put it into stocks and shares either to see what I can get out of it for the next four years with the risk of losing some money? Or do I just fire it away? I don't really know what to do. Thanks. So this is a classic question, right? They want to um, have as much of a deposit as possible for this buy-to-let property. Decided they'd like to do that in four years' time. Do I invest that money or do I just put it in the bank? So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast regularly, you will know you will know what the issues are here and you probably know what my answer is going to be, which is... Um, well, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe you don't know what my answer is going to be. The the issue we've got is time frame versus risk versus return, right? So four years time, it's not bad for an investment time frame. You know, I'd like to generally say at least five years um, for investing in the stock market, but you know, three years is kind of the minimum. So we're not we're not miles off there. Um, the next part of it, I suppose, is how set you are on that four year time frame, because when it comes to this investment, um, you know, in four years. The likelihood is that the investment will be worth more than what you put in. You know, historically speaking, that is a long enough time for us to go through a market cycle and come out the other end looking looking okay. But that's not always going to be the case. You know, there have been periods where um, potentially it could have turned out to not be such a great decision. So, if you are 100% married to that date that you want to purchase the house, I would say you potentially could still invest. Um, but probably be fairly cautious with the level of risk you want to take. So, you know, as we know, investing is a spectrum. So just because you're putting money in a stocks and shares ISA doesn't mean you can only invest in stocks and shares. It's not like you have to go 100% equity. You know, there's lots of different levels of risk you can take. Something like a cautious portfolio 
with 30-40% equity is likely going to get you a better return than cash still over that time frame, but it's not going to fluctuate as much as, as a 60-70-80-100% as a equity portfolio. So, you know, you've got options. Um, if you are prepared to accept that level of risk, then obviously the more your investment can grow, um, the, the lower the deposit, the lower the level of borrowing you need, sorry, the higher the deposit, the lower the level, level of borrowing you will need, the lower your then, go, then ongoing costs are on the property uh, and things like that. So, you know, I don't think it's a, uh, I think it just comes, it always, like anything, comes down to a personal choice. I think if you're talking about um, purchasing an investment property, that is less of a concern to me. You know, I think all you're doing at that point is switching one investment to another. So, you know, if you are in a place where mm, four years down the line, it's not a great place, a great time to sell my investment portfolio, you know, you're not really losing out on anything necessarily by holding on a bit longer. You know, you probably, you may have to wait another year or two for it to be at a point that you're comfortable in selling, but you're still invested. You know, you're not having to rent somewhere or you're not having to, you know, put your kids in a house that's just a bit small for you, things like that. So there's not none of those kind of lifestyle issues that come from this issue generally when people are talking about saving to buy a house that they're going to live in. So obviously I can't tell you what to do because that's, that's advice and I don't know enough about you to know what's going to be the best thing in your situation. What I think the question you really need to ask yourself to, to come to this conclusion yourself is how would you feel if in four years' time the investment had either gone down or earned very little? You know, what would you do at that point? I think if the answer to that question is, oh, well, I would just sell it and buy the investment property anyway because I really want to do that and I don't want to budge on the time scale, then potentially investing that money is not necessarily going to be the right option. You know, maybe you should play it safer and just stick to cash. If the answer to that question is, oh, obviously I wouldn't be stoked about it because I've lost money or I've not made very much, but that's fine. You know, I'd just let it ride, let it roll for a few more years uh, until there was enough there for a decent deposit. Then that starts to lend itself to, okay, well, maybe maybe looking at an investment um, is potentially something that you should consider. So there is no right or wrong here. I think the other point to keep in mind is that, um, you know, it does also depend on the amount of money you're talking about. You know, the, obviously the the greater the sum that you're looking to potentially invest, the greater the difference in pounds and pence that this is going to make to you after those four years' time. So if you're investing, you know, five or ten grand, it will make a difference, don't get me wrong, if you get a few extra percent return, but four years is still a relatively short time frame. So, you know, you're not talking about 10 and 20, 30, 40 grand difference. You're talking about a few hundred, a few thousand pounds. Um if you're talking about a deposit of eighty thousand pounds or a hundred thousand pounds, then that's a different that's a different uh, kettle of fish, really, because that you're starting to get to a point where those extra levels of return are going to make a pretty pretty sizable uh, difference from from a pounds and pence perspective. So I hope that's been useful. I hope that kind of helps you narrow down the questions you should be asking yourself to make a call on this. So that is the episode for this week, guys. Thank you very much for tuning in as always. Um, if I could just drop, let you, uh, drop you a little reminder to please leave a review for the show. That really helps me um, in the, the, the podcast rankings and things like that. So if you could just scroll down to the bottom of the show on your podcast app, 
drop me a, a nice five-star review and if you've got time then a couple of comments would be really greatly appreciated if you have questions um, that you would like to ask me then as always please do get in touch social media is generally the best way you can also email me at jason at jasonmountford.com and of course there's always the voice messages in the show notes thank you again guys for listening i really do appreciate you giving up your time to, to listen to me waffle on for a bit and i look forward to speaking to you next week Hi guys, I just wanted to jump in really quickly to let you know about my free weekly newsletter, also called The Hedge. Every week I comb through all the social feeds and news websites to cut through the noise and bring you the latest news and ideas in investing, business, entrepreneurship and personal development. As with all content from The Hedge, the aim is to help you grow your wealth in a way that allows you to be your real, authentic self. If you'd like to sign up, you can find the link as well as the links to all our other content at thehedge.io.